butterfly in the sky. Gotta write a grant, oh my. They can take a look and find your hook. It's a mock review. In today's episode, we are talking about how reading makes you a better writer. Because your word choice influences how easy it is for grant makers and reviewers to understand your organizations as well as your programs and services. If you're the primary writer, especially on complex proposals, it can be hard to get a fresh perspective to find things that may leave the grant maker with unanswered questions. The mock review service offered by D.H. Leonard Consulting provides fresh eyes for any proposal, whether they were the lead writing team or not. Contact them to learn more about putting your proposals through mock review at dhleonardconsulting.com. Reading Rainbow, sold separately. Well, hello there. I'm Kimberly Hayes Samuga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Fundraising Hey Day podcast. Woohoo! We are here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and fundraising, including how to raise more money, how to win more grants, and but really also how to work together to just improve how philanthropy works in general. That's right. And we have new episodes that drop every two weeks. And sometimes they include cheesy sound effects and songs because learning doesn't have to be boring. And we're, and we're cheesy people. Let's just go. <laughs> Very true. This podcast is brought to you by our season six sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Their team can help make grants less stressful by assisting you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Don't let grants stress you out. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. Well, hey there, listeners. Today, we're taking a deep dive into an important topic that I'm guessing most of us know just enough about to understand that we really know nothing about it. At least that's how I feel. (laughs) So, so yeah, I know enough to know that it's important. Do I know all the things that go into it? No, but that's okay, because we have someone here who does. Um, We decided to bring in what we would call the big guns today, right? A fellow Grant Professionals Association member who knows her way all around the rules of uniform guidance, especially when it comes to talking about indirect costs. Having participated in several of her GPA annual conference sessions over the years, I can attest and testify that she knows what she knows. Yep, same here. So Karen Norris is a nationally recognized in the grant community as a consultant and subject matter expert for, I hope I get this, Conoco Consulting, which is a Karen Norris company in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and Lewis, Delaware. She's got experience in grants and contracts with, um, for more than 30 years, she previously served as a grants administrator for educational institutions in the state of Maryland. She was an author and managing editor for grants publications at a national publishing house, and she's currently working as a consultant. Karen has served on the board of directors of professional associations and editorial advisory boards, She's invited as an annual presenter at national conferences and regional trainings, which is where Kimberly and I have heard her, um, at places like the Grant Professionals Association, National Grant Management Association, Management Concepts, California Governor's Grants Office, and others. She advises clients and conducts webinars and virtual classes and on-site grant training. Um, The White House Conference on Aging published her white paper about health grants, She's provided testimony to the Maryland General Assembly, which I've presented in front of council meetings. I can only imagine what that was like at a General Assembly for a state. Um, But she has presented to them supporting legislation about the de minimis indirect rate, which we will talk about. Um, And she's responded to information requests about the grant process from the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Federal Financial Management and the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability. She's also served as a federal reviewer for the U.S. Department of Education and U.S. Department of Agriculture. So welcome, Karen. So glad to have you. 
Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Kimberly. It's uh, great to be here. And thank you so much for your kind words. So shall we get started on this big topic of indirect costs? I think we should. <laughs> so maybe we should just start out with a definition, right? Because we have people of all experience levels tuning into this podcast. Oh, wait. Before we do the definition, though, Kimberly, we need our, our tried and true question we ask for every um attendee i was so excited to get to the stuff yes no amanda's right we need the origin story yes so karen clearly you've got grant experience you've got some chops right um but we always want to know most people didn't say i want to be a grant writer when i'm 12 right we usually we fall into this career so how did you end up living in the world of grants like you do well, I think it's such a great question, and it's exactly right. I have yet, in my 30 years, I have yet to meet someone who said, I know what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a grants person and, and, and studied to be it and then became a grants person. And I, like most people, ended up falling into it by accident. So I was in early career, and I was teaching for a public school system in Maryland, and it was time for me to apply for an administrator's job. So I went into HR for my interview, and I'm thinking I'm interviewing for a school-based administrator position, because after all, I was school-based. Yeah. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe assistant principal or curriculum specialist. So I got to my interview, and it went something like this. Well, Karen, here's the deal. We've got this grants manager's position available in the school system. Nobody seems to want it. It's been vacant for a long time. We've got to <laughs> fill it. Now, if you think you'd like to be the grants manager, we'll continue with the interview. And if not, come back another time. So what was I going to say to them? I wanted the I wanted the promotion. Yeah. So I said, oh, sure, I'll be the grants person for the school system. No problem. I had never heard of a grant. I had no clue. So I asked a stupid question like, and by the way, what's a grant? And so <laughs> it's not the best question to ask. So HR said, you know, we have no idea. Go talk to the budget office. They'll explain it to you. And by the way, you have the job. And that was the whole interview. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. And and when I got to the budget office, I looked around and said, oh, my God, everybody's working with numbers in this office. This is not good. So I thought, OK, I'm going to get out of this position as soon as I can. But in the meantime, I better go take some classes so I know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I signed up for um, a master's of business program. And that was a very good combination of skill sets. And it didn't take me long to absolutely fall in love with the whole career that the funders make funding available to non-federal entities so they can go out and do good things in their local jurisdictions. And I just, I just was thrilled with the whole concept. So that was back in 1988. <laughs> And I never left. I never got out. And for anyone who's new and just starting out a career in grants, I hope you fall in love with the career as much as I did. Absolutely. Well, that's I love that for most people that is like they fell into it and they're like, what is this profession? But so many people are like, but I stayed because yeah. it was great. Right. That's that awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I have curbed my enthusiasm so that we could hear that origin story. But now I would love for you to define what indirect, indirect cost rate is, why it's beneficial to claim it in federal grants. And if you want to throw in a couple of examples just to help folks, because we do have listeners of all levels of experience with grants and fundraising. Well, let's start off with the real basic, with a definition of a direct cost and an indirect cost, and then we can talk about an indirect cost rate. It will make more sense. So a direct cost is a cost that is, just as the name says, is directly associated with a particular project. Without a doubt, without hesitation, the project director works on that project. That's an example of a direct cost. Um, the equipment is purchased for that project. An indirect cost, though, on the other hand, is a little bit harder to, to explain. The indirect cost supports all grant projects, but it's not 
directly associated. It's a shared cost. Mm -hmm. So the good people who are working in payroll are an indirect cost. It doesn't matter if you work on grant A or grant B or grant C, or if you don't work on a grant at all, everybody who works is going to get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. So the people in payroll are shared mm -hmm. among everybody. Mm -hmm. That's an indirect cost. An accounting term is allocated. They're an allocated cost. I like to use the word shared because people understand you share the cost among everybody. The tricky part about direct and indirect costs is that you can have a cost that's direct for somebody and indirect for somebody else. And let me give you another example, salaries. Salaries can be direct or indirect. It depends. It depends on whose salary you're talking about. Now, if you're talking about the salary for the, our project director, that salary is going to be a direct cost. But if you're talking about the salaries of the people who work in the payroll department themselves, that salary is an indirect cost. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why direct and indirect costs are so difficult because a word like travel or equipment or salaries can be direct or indirect depending upon whose salary, travel, or equipment you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Very true. Now, the benefits to for claiming an indirect cost, if we were for-profits, for-profits will boost their prices. They have what's called a profit margin in all their prices. So the profit margin that they make helps to pay for their overhead costs, the shared costs like the payroll department, the maintenance department, rent, utilities. They can cover those costs because they, they boost their prices with mm -hmm. profit margin. You don't have that in the nonprofit world or in the government world. You don't have that at all. So the only way that a governmental organization or a nonprofit can help support those overhead costs is by having this indirect cost rate that they can charge to grants. That helps them recover part of the overhead costs. It won't cover everything, but it will help support their overhead costs because we can't charge profit in our world. I've never heard it explained that way and how beautiful of an example to make it make sense. Great. It also gives fuel to the fire when, for example, when board members come to say, we're here because we know how to run a business and nonprofits should be run more like a business. That's a great time to point out, but they're not because we're not often allowed to use overhead and in fact are penalized by certain organizations that rate nonprofits around even claiming a, a, a small percentage of overhead as a part of our profit. So just a, just a little just a little arrow for the quill as I think about board development and other kinds of things, but it's a great example. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, so now that we understand what, you know, the difference between direct and indirect cost rates, um, when it comes to figuring out what your indirect cost rate is, there are, it's not just, yes, Kimberly, go ahead. Sorry, I, I just wanted to make it clear too, and Karen, please correct me if I'm wrong. If you're listening to the, our podcast or watching this on YouTube and you're like, I'm writing a grant for the ABC Family Foundation, they don't, they don't say anything about indirect costs. What is this even about? I just want to say that, as Karen has said, we are talking about federal grants and possibly many state grants, particularly those that handle sort of that federal pass-through funding that use indirect costs. There are some larger private um, grant makers that will ha uh, have an opportunity to address indirect costs. They often assign a random percentage. That's been my experience. But I just wanted to make sure that if people are mainly focused on private foundations, they may not have even encountered this and may be like, oh my gosh, have I, you know, have I messed something up? And it's it's really dependent on the type of funder. And we're focusing 
on that federal, um, those federal and federal related applications. So that was my PSA for no, where we're I think, oh, I think that's great. But, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. It does not hurt. It does not hurt. And if a private funder doesn't mention indirect costs, it doesn't hurt to ask them, by the way, can I charge indirect costs? That's true. It doesn't. You never know. You might be surprised with an answer. And then again, they may not. But, you know, they have to make up their overhead, too, sometime at, in some way so that you would think that they would understand. Right. <laughs> You would think. Yeah. I saw a private funder and it's, they're small. I mean, it's small as far as like the, right. they give between like 10 and $20,000. So they're not huge grant makers. Um, they allow you to charge up to 50% to indirect yeah. cost rate. And I've never seen that before with anybody. And I had a heart attack. I'm like, you may be my favorite funder right now. Once <laughs> <laughs> said to go general operating funding. We, we like your mission. Yes. We trust you. We reviewed your finances. Do what you need to do. Those are my favorites. But in the meantime, there yes. are big opportunities for indirect costs and getting those, yes. those shared costs. I love that term, those shared costs covered. Yep. yep. So when it comes to, you know, you don't, if, if you don't know, if you haven't dealt with indirect cost rates, you don't just get to claim a rate. You don't just get to say, hey, our rate is 23% and we're going to charge it. You actually have to go through a process. So could you kind of give a quick, and I know it's not quick, it is a complicated process, <laughs> but as, as simplified as possible, let folks know, like, what is that process? And because there's different types of indirect cost rates you can claim, right? Mm -hmm. There's different categories, I guess. Yeah, let's start with the different types of rate, and then we'll talk about process. Fabulous. So there's more than one kind of an indirect cost rate. There are lots of choices of different kinds of indirect cost rates. And part of the challenge with indirect costs is figuring out, well, which would be the best rate for me? Mm -hmm. And in addition to the different types of indirect cost rates, there are different ways to calculate the rate. There are different formulas that are used. So you would use a formula with a rate. And then lastly, some non-federal entities have more than one indirect rate. When I worked for my community college, uh, we had three indirect rates. We had an on-campus rate, we had an off-campus rate, and then we had our regular indirect you know, we had our fringe benefit rate, which we calculated separately. Fringe benefits is like an indirect cost rate because they're shared benefits for salaries like vacation or sick. And there are different ways of treating indirect rates. Mm -hmm. You can co combine them in a calculation or you can do them separately. So it's, co it's complicated because there are a lot of variables and a lot of choices. So let's talk about the different kinds of an indirect rates. There's a rate called a predetermined rate. Now that's one of the most attractive rates because it's easier to, to apply for. Those rates are usually reserved for very stable agencies like state governments okay. who get the same funding year after year after year. Their funding doesn't fluctuate very much. So you can predetermine the rate, which basically means, oh, I'm going to use the same rate this year that I used last year because our revenue hasn't changed very much. So that's an easier type of rate to, to apply for, but not everybody is, is eligible for that kind of a rate. Now, there's another rate called a fixed rate with carry forward. And that would be for someone who had a predetermined rate, but there was a big change, like suddenly they have COVID funding and their revenue went whoo, way through the roof. And then, oh, we're losing our COVID funding and the revenue goes way down. So there's a bump. And there are different ways that people handled that COVID funding, but with a fixed rate with carry forward, if you had a rate and there was a sudden major change within the year, they don't penalize you. You make it through the year with the rate that you had, and then the very next year they carry forward the part that you owe them and they, they charge it to a future period. Okay. So it's interesting. So that's an, a nice rate. Um, if you have a, 
a stable rate and then all of a sudden there's a, a big change. Most people will calculate the rate, it's called a final rate. And sometimes the federal agency will provide a temporary provisional rate that they can use while they're waiting for the final rate to be completed. Um, for institutions of higher ed, there is something called a facilities and administrative rate, an FNA rate, mm -hmm. because universities have great big campuses. Mm -hmm. So they have grass to cut and parking lots to clear the snow out of, and they have buildings to pay for in addition to the usual overhead that everybody else has. So that is a special calculation, that FNA rate, and it's for types of organizations that have great big campuses, big hospitals, institutions of higher ed. Makes and sense. then lastly, off the top of my head, we have the de minimis rate, which is a flat rate, a 10% flat rate that, that we can talk more on if, if we have time. So those are different types of rates. Now, what about the calculations or the formula? Well, when I worked for my organizations, we always calculated our rate using something called total direct costs. Excuse me. It might not have been the most beneficial rate, but it was the easiest one for everyone to understand. If you're charging indirect costs on all costs, total direct costs, you don't have to worry about backing out any exclusions or any type of exceptions. You're just using total direct costs. We'll charge our indirect rate on everything. Yeah. So that is one type of calculation. Another calculation is called modified total direct costs or MTDC, modified. So that's a very popular calculation. It yields a slightly higher rate than total direct costs, but you have to keep track of exclusions. If the rate is modified in some way, then it means there are some costs that are excluded from the formula. Equipment is an example. With modified total direct costs, you cannot charge indirect for equipment. So you have to remember to back it out. You can't charge it. And folks who don't, who are new at indirect costs, who don't understand the subtleties may not may not realize oh that's a harder formula because you have to know about exclusions what is allowed and what isn't allowed and karen so, are those exclusions are they like it's across the board there's rules about what's excluded or does it depend yes. okay and the definitions are in the uniform guidance mm -hmm. and right up in subpart a on, under definitions and they'll define direct costs, indirect costs. They'll define um, what modified total direct cost is. And it will say included in, in modified total direct costs are salaries, fringe benefits, supplies, da 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 da. Excluded are equipment, patient care costs. So if, ooh, if you're a hospital and you have a lot of patient care costs, this might not be the right formula for you to use. Okay. Tuition is not counted mm -hmm. in modified total direct costs. So if you're a, a, a college or a university and you have a lot of tuition costs, that might not be a good rate for you either. Mm -hmm. So it, you have to think about what is included and what is excluded when you pick a calculation or a formula. Another popular one is um, salary, salaries only. And that's an easier rate because you're only counting one category. Mm -hmm. So if you're a small nonprofit and you're like, a, let's say, a social service agency and you mostly have part-time social workers or part-time people who aren't coming into the main office, but they're going out and working on site with um, families and clients. And so there's just, you know, the organization is renting small space in, in a in a building for the main staff and and the majority of their staff are the social workers so they don't have 
they don't own a building, they don't have a lot of equipment, they don't have a lot of supplies, they have to pay rent, you know, but they what they have are people. And the people are their main cost. So you can have an indirect cost rate that's based on salaries only. Mm-hmm. And you only charge it to salaries. And that's it. So that's something that people can understand. Oh, we only charge indirect costs on salaries. That makes sense. So it the calculation is it different types of indirect rates, different types of calculations. And then some non-federal entities can have more than one rate. It's it's really quite remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable is one adjective. I was going to say incredibly complex, but it's true. It's well, true. Well, it's yeah. nice that there are options because you can kind of pick and choose what works best for your type and size and of organization. So it, I mean, options are good, but you're right. It does. It's it can get complicated, and you want to do it right. Right. And you right. want to do it with trained professionals. Yes, exactly. You want a licensed professional to help you create your your indirect rate. And even with the de minimis rate, which is a 10% flat rate, Mm -hmm. it's not 10% on everything. Mm -hmm. It's not 10% on total direct costs. It's 10% on modified total direct costs. That is the requirement for the de minimis flat rate. I did not know that. Yeah, 10%. So you have to know that MTDC definition to know that you can't charge that 10% on equipment or rent or um, rent might be tuition. okay. Yeah, patient care costs, tuition. There's there's a lot of exclusions. So mm-hmm. it's easy, but it's That's you not- have to understand MTDC. It's not 10% on everything. Interesting. And when you talked about hiring a professional, what kind of person are you looking for? You know, to help you establish those rates. A CPA, you would want a licensed professional, a CPA, but you would want to ask them if they have experience working with nonprofits. Because a lot of CPAs are in the for profit world. Mm And for-profit accounting is very different from nonprofit accounting. So yeah. you would want to make sure you have a licensed professional who has experience in the nonprofit or governmental governmental accounting or nonprofit accounting. Okay, good to know. If you found that trained, licensed, experienced professional, and you your organization had never established this any had never even really thought about establishing an indirect cost rate. Is there any feel that you would have for how long that process could take to establish that rate, working with someone who, a professional who knows how to to establish it? Well, if they've never had an indirect rate before, I think it's always a good place to start with the de minimis. Mm -hmm. Because that introduces you to the you know trying to well okay what are what are my indirect costs what are my direct costs and you have to learn that mtdc formula Mm -hmm. calculation and that gives you a start now but your question is a good one kimberly it's not so much tied to whether the individual the individual the individual organization is new at it or not but indirect costs because they are complicated take a long time to calculate mm-hmm. and a typical indirect cost rate will take 3 to 5 years to calculate if you can imagine that wow. I, I occasionally i've seen it on a 2 year cycle but it's usually three or four years. So let me give you an example of a four-year cycle. If you wanted an indirect cost rate for next year, for fiscal year 2024, you would have started in 2021, believe it or not. You would take the audited financial statements that have a list of everything you spent for that year, And you would look at those audited financial statements from 2021. And the first thing you have to do is to make two columns and divide up those costs. This one belongs in an indirect column. This one belongs in a direct column. 
And that takes a lot of thought. Oh, well, wait a minute. Our executive director is indirect, but the executive director also works on a grant 50% of the time. So you have to know to divide that executive director mm -hmm. salary in half and half into both mm -hmm. columns. So in 2021, you look at your actuals and you put them into two columns. They're either direct or they're indirect costs or they're a percentage, you know, 50-50, 80-20, whatever it is. And then in, after you've done that in 2022, I guess you're looking Looking, you take the 2021 financials and in 2022, you start dividing them up and that takes time. And then that's not the only piece of information that is included in an indirect cost rate proposal. You have to describe things and you have to include your board members and a description of your organization. And so in 2022, you're going to be putting together your proposal. And then you submit it to the federal agency for approval. If you're a subrecipient, you would submit it to the pass-through entity for approval. Okay. And they may need to all of 2023 to review and figure it out and approve it. Wow. They may need a year to, you know, because they're going to look at it and they're going to say, mm, we don't understand why the executive director is 50% here and 50% there. Can you tell us why you did that? Mm -hmm. So you go through what they call a negotiation period. And it's not that they're trying to negotiate like a used car salesman. Well, I'll offer you this. Well, I'm not going to give you that. You know, it's not like a counter offer. It's just that they have to make sure they understand why a cost is in the direct column and why a cost is in an indirect column. And sometimes that takes time. And so in 2023, the agency is going to review, you're going to go back and forth, giving them more information. And by the end of 2023, as you start fiscal year 2024, you're good to go. So that is a four-year process. Mm -hmm. It is a big process. Maybe you can get it done in three years, you know, but whatever it is, you want to give yourself enough time. So for example, 2021 actuals that for the 2024 rate, that gives you enough time to get it done in time. Now the, the, other part of that is that indirect costs have to be calculated every single year. The rate has to be approved every year unless you have an exception mm -hmm. to have a longer period. So assuming you're with the most, most people who have to do the indirect cost rate calculation every single year, and if you have a four-year cycle, that means you have four different proposals going concurrently each year all at a different right. I can say all <laughs> at a different stage of development, uh -huh. right? which is why you need a licensed professional to help you keep it straight because you're not working on one indirect cost rate proposal by itself. It's you're working on three or four all at a different stage and you're working on multiple fiscal years. Wow. That's yeah, a lot. So I can totally see the your the 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 wisdom of your suggestion. Start out with the de minimis, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and a, yeah, and at least get used to the vocabulary because with the de minimis rate, you don't have to do a proposal. You just have to say, I'm going to take it. But you have to understand how to use it. You have to understand, oh, it's not 10% on everything. It's 10% on MTDC. So you have to understand what that means. And another good suggestion with the de minimis, especially if you're first starting out, you should probably have a local policy that says we're going to use the de minimis rate for our um, our indirect costs, and we're going to use it indefinitely until we decide to calculate a rate, and we understand the definition of MTDC, and you know just to give an auditor some reasonable assurance. You know, so when the auditor comes by to audit how you're using indirect costs, you can show them your policy and, oh, they understand it's MTDC. Oh, they know what is included and what isn't included. And they've got the 
this policy is signed by the leadership of this organization. So everybody's on board. And that is a very, that provides reasonable assurance um, that you're using it properly. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. And if you're, if you're wondering, if you're listening and you're like, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't we just always go with de minimis? Why calculate? I would say that it's because oftentimes those true four year ongoing calculations for sizable organizations are going to result in a higher de minimis rate. I mean, higher rate than the 10% de minimis rate. I mean, so right. it could be depending on the complexity of your organization, your indirect costs, if your university could be 60% even um, or 30 or, 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 or 20, any higher than 10. So I think if you're listening and you're like, why would anyone go through that? It's like, because that's a big difference in the amount of um, indirect costs that you could get covered um, for grants, which generally are there for very, you know, restricted funding, particularly federal grants for programs and projects. And right. Able to get that extra funding to keep your lights on or whatever it is that you calculate um, for indirect costs is a beautiful thing. Well, you said a really key word, though, and it's tied to a misconception to get that extra funding mm -hmm. through indirect costs. There is no extra funding. You, you no, know, it all it comes out of the total of the the grant. You got it. And but a lot of non-federal entities who don't who've never used indirect costs before want it because they think they're going to get extra funding. Oh, so no. if the grant award is a hundred thousand dollars and they're using the ten percent de minimis rate, they think they're going to get. $110,000. And it does not work that way. You, It's a seesaw. So it's proportional. And if it's a $100,000 award, now this isn't a true calculation because you never end up with zeros, even zeros. But just for a broad illustration, with a $100,000 grant award and a 10% de minimis rate, that means you take that $100,000 award and you use $90,000 for the direct costs and $10,000 to help pay for the overhead. Mm -hmm. The indirect costs. Mm -hmm. So you have to reduce the direct costs as the indirect cost. So right. if you have an organization that has a 60% indirect cost rate, which could happen, mm -hmm. particularly in the world of institutions of higher ed, because they have such big campuses, they have so much more to take care of than the average entity. Think about it. If you have a $100,000 award with a 60% indirect cost rate, they're going to skim off $60,000 right off the top of that award to pay for overhead. And there's only $40,000 left to use for that project. So you can imagine why the program managers of an organization are like, wait a minute, that's my grant. Mm -hmm. I worked hard for that grant. I want that hundred thousand dollars for my project i don't want to give up sixty thousand dollars of that hundred thousand for the general coffers of the university so another reason why starting off with the de minimis rate even if it's not the best or the most advantageous rate for a, an organization, mm -hmm. it gives a great introduction to the world of indirect costs and 10% re reduced the reducing the indirect cost by 10% is something that's more palatable for the program managers to, 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 to deal with. The yeah, the financial managers of an organization understand how critical those overhead costs recovery are. But the program managers who just want to deliver mission and they want to yeah. deliver the program, they don't understand about overhead. They just want the money to go for their project. So um, 10% is, is a good place to start. Yeah. Well, and I know um, I worked for the city of Alpharetta for a long time and we never, we didn't even claim the de minimis rate for that, for the reason you're talking about. We typically 
we're wanting 100% of our grants to go directly to programs. Um, and so we never claimed any over any of that indirect cost rate on any of our grants. And but part of it, too, was one, we wanted it to go to direct and we our finance department, even though we had a few CPAs on staff, we just didn't have the bandwidth Mm-hmm. to to deal with it. So we just kind of decided, you know what, we'll just get, use all of our grant money. And it wasn't like, I mean, grants were such a small percentage of our overall operating budget. So it, it was an easy decision for us to just go that route. Can there be any other reasons people might want to not claim indirect costs? Like, cause I mean, it, it sounds like a great idea, right? But that, you know, that when you get into it and realize that it comes out of the total grant, as opposed, it's not an add-on, I think. Yeah. Karen was explaining yeah. that can be a real eye opener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is an eye opener, and you know, so the it's it's one of the top ten audit findings that people make mistakes. So having indirect costs, people because people you know they don't understand there are different kinds of rates, there are different kinds of formulas. They don't understand what modified total direct costs are. They're charging indirect on everything. Mm-hmm. So there's so there are typical audit findings with indirect costs. It's difficult to to do that proposal. As you said, you don't often have a bandwidth, which is why a lot of organizations will hire, even if they have a financial office, they'll hire a specialist with a CPA with a background in, in nonprofit indirect costs to help them efficiently put together a, a rate proposal. It, it's, it's just complicated, but it's the benefits far outweigh in my experience the 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 risks with it if you're able to charge some indirect costs i would recommend you try to do it because it does take a lot of money to pay the for the maintenance people and to pay for the internet and to pay for the rent and to pay for all those maintenance costs and non- and the grants benefit by that. So they can contribute a little bit toward the overhead costs of an institution. Another good reason to go for indirect costs, um, even you know while you're weighing, is that once you have an indirect cost rate, there's no rule that says you must charge it. That's you, true. you can decide not to charge it anyway, or you can decide, let's say you have a, a 28% indirect cost rate. You had it negotiated. You could say, what if the grant has a 20% cost sharing requirement? Well, you can waive the indirect costs and apply it to cost sharing. And it is such a wonderful way to satisfy a cost sharing requirement. It's auditors like it. They can Mm -hmm. can document it. So here you have your same $100,000 grant award and you have a 28% indirect cost rate. So $72,000 is going to go for direct costs and $28,000 is going to go to indirect costs. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. 72 plus 28 make the 100,000. Now in comes the 20% cost sharing. You can say, okay, I'm going to waive I'm not, or I'm not going to recover 20% of my 28% indirect cost rate. So you move that $20,000 up to direct costs. And now you, so now you have $92,000 direct costs. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Hopefully I'll, and I'm happy to repeat if, if I need to. No, listening on. Okay. So you now, so you switch categories mm-hmm. and you now have $92,000 of direct costs, which really makes everybody happy. The federal, the agency's happy. The program people are happy and you still have 8% left over that can go for indirect costs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the 92,000 direct and the 8,000 for indirect equals that $100,000 grant award. So it's a very painless way to satisfy cost sharing. Non-federal entities sometimes can't apply for grants because they don't have any way of coming up with that cost sharing requirement. Very true. 
even if you had the 10% de minimis rate, mm -hmm. you could say, okay, I'm not going to take my 10% de minimis rate. $10,000 goes towards that $20,000 cost sharing. And now you only have to come up with another $10,000 mm -hmm. rather than the full 20. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I think all of this points to the importance to understanding the time that it can take. And if you're working on a federal grant that's due in three weeks, now is not the time to <laughs> to go, wait, we need to calculate our our indirect um, cost because it's not going to happen in in three weeks. It's, it's, well, that's, it's a, that's a wonderful comment because that's not how it happens at all. The indirect cost rate calculation has nothing to do exactly. with the deadline of a grant. It's tied to the fiscal year. So you would calculate the indirect, a, a non-federal entity, not you, but a non-federal entity would calculate its indirect cost rate based on its fiscal year. And it's irrelevant whether they have two grants or 20 grants. And that's how that that's the habit that needs to be developed each mm -hmm. fiscal year. When the fiscal year comes rolling around, I need to look at my indirect cost rate. And do I want to use de minimis or do I want to try to calculate a rate? And then the rate will take anywhere from two, three, five years, to, depending upon how complicated an institution is. Now, if you're a state government that's very stable and you're using that predetermined rate, it's not gonna take five years. You, they could just say, our revenue hasn't changed. We're gonna use the same indirect rate last year as this year. That's all it is. That's all they have to do. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. But then at the end of the year, they have to do a they have to do a double check. They mm -hmm. have to look at the actuals and with the what they estimate and go, oh no, didn't change. No problem. Yeah. We'll use the same rate the next year. So again, the the some rates are harder than other rates to calculate. And but the calculation is always tied to the fiscal year of the non-federal entity. It has nothing to do with when a grant proposal is due. Yeah. So I think that's a distinction that I just wanted to make sure we made that a couple of times because it's it's easy if you're not familiar to conflate the two. Mm -hmm. And even though we've used the word proposal to talk about a proposal that to for calculating those rates, right. working with an entity. It's not a grant proposal. No. For our seasoned um, listeners, they're like, we got it. But I'm just saying that as a newbie many years ago, I was like, what? What's the difference? Because I came to it because I like to write, not because I had a facility for um, budgets and numbers and calculations. So I just mm -hmm. always want to make sure we get um, get the points out that it's it's an ongoing calculation that can take the, that takes a form of a kind of proposal prepared by a CPA or a firm, it's not a grant proposal, but a grant proposal can- a financial use. proposal. Yes. It's, it's a financial proposal yes. for your overhead, right? It's it, There's no program statute. There's no mission being delivered. It's strictly a, a, a financial proposal that's separate and apart from any real proposals that a, an entity would go for. And it has to be timed with the fiscal year of the non-federal entity. Now, if you're one of these unhappy non-federal entities, well, golly day, I'm a city government <laughs> and all of our state funding come is tied to our fiscal year, then you do have a problem where you have lots of proposals happening at the same time that you have to do your indirect cost calculation. So, you know, that 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 does happen too. But the indirect cost rate is always tied to a fiscal year where the proposals for programs or research are throughout the year, all with different deadlines. And of course, if you have the de minimis rate, you can keep it, you know, mm -hmm. indefinitely. You don't have to recalculate it every year. You don't have to do anything with it every year, but, but just continue to use it. So again, it is significant reduced administrative burden mm -hmm. with that, with that de minimis proposal. 
Um, and it's my understanding, Karen, that like you, anybody, you can claim the de minimis rate, but once you have actually negotiated a rate, you cannot go back to that de minimis rate. Is that correct? Ah, when the uniform guidance, a great question. When the uniform guidance was first released in 2014, that's exactly the way it was. The de minimis mm -hmm. rate was for a non-federal entity that never, ever, ever, ever had a rate before. And then if you, and once you got a rate and if it didn't work out, or if it was too hard and you said, oh, this was a mistake, you know, yeah. I don't like this. I want the de minimis again. They couldn't go back to the de minimis. So there was a big outcry of unhappiness in the grant community. So when the uniform guidance was revised in 2020, one of the changes that they made was with the de minimis rate. And the new verbiage says, and for those of you who want the citation from the uniform guidance, it's 200.414F as in Frank, there's the, there's the citation. So the new rule says that a non-federal entity may use the de minimis rate as long as they do not currently have a negotiated rate. So if they used to have a negotiated rate and then gave it up because it was too problematic, they could go back and, and go to the de minimis rate. That was a, a very positive revision. Yeah. Um, the uniform guidance was revised in 2020. I miss that, but what a great, I'm glad they did that because I can imagine a lot of people thought, oh, I can get more money and it'll be great. And you're like, wait, no, it's more more trouble than it's worth. But again, yeah. they, it's not like they're getting more money. They can just yes. sort of change the balance of Where, their yes. getting. Yeah. Exactly. But it is, it's a big misconception. People think I'm getting more money mm -hmm. with it. And it's not, it's just, it's just a shift in how they Where use the, money it. the grant is capped at whatever it is. And so you have to split mm -hmm. the, the, what's direct and what's indirect. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you can, if you had a, a, a negotiated rate and it was just too much of a headache, and as you said, the finance department doesn't have the bandwidth with to keep up with it. You could you could drop it. And then the next fiscal year, you can go back to using the de minimis rate. Very nice. Um, one other thing that came to mind, too, especially for listeners who are new to the idea of indirect cost rates. You know, we've talked about negotiating your rate. And you mentioned if you are a subrecipient, you would go to who's funding you. But if you have money directly from the feds, let's say I've got grants from Department of Justice and Health and Human Services and Department of Transportation, who do I do I have to go to each of them? Or yeah. do I so who do I how do I decide where I go to the best practice? It's not written specifically anywhere. Okay. But the best practice is that as long as you receive federal funds directly, you can go to the federal agency to, to negotiate the rate. Now, if you're a, a subrecipient and you only receive funding through pass-through entities like state, the mm -hmm. states get the money from the feds and then the state turns around and, and makes sub-awards to nonprofits or school systems or city or county governments. Um, then you, if you only receive pass-through funding, then you would go to the pass-through who gives you the most funding. Okay. And that pass-through would negotiate the funding for you and all the other pass-through entities would accept it. The okay. same thing works with the federal. If you're a large organization and you have multiple grants from multiple federal agencies, your agency who is responsible for helping you with your indirect rate would be the agency that gives you the most money. Yeah. And that they call that your cognizant federal agency. Exactly, they call that the cognizant federal agency, mm -hmm. the one that gives you the most money. Now, once you have a cognizant agency, let's say your funding shifts from year to year, you keep that cognizant agency for a period. It's either three or five years, so there's not all this bouncing back and forth. Awesome. So you don't have to change your cognizant agency every year if your funding changes. But your cognizant agency is the agency that awards the most money. Okay. And then all the other funding agencies, whether it's federal or pass-through, will accept that indirect rate. 
you yeah. don't you don't have to negotiate it thank heavens with every single agency do you have an advice karen because i've um when i teach grant writing and management classes we usually spend you know like three minutes talking about indirect cost rates and more <laughs> often than not i will have somebody in class who will say that they have a funder who it's they don't want to accept their rate and i'm like but they have to and they're like yeah we know but they're not you have any advice for people who are dealing with that? Like maybe it's, and usually I think it's like a state agency that's, you know, is not yeah, that yeah. they're dealing with. It's not wanting to accept yeah. their larger um, rate. Um, it is not in, um, uh, not with private funders, but only with no, the federal, federal funding. or federally yes. connected funding. Yes. yes. It's that same citation, 200.414. Okay. And there's an A, B, C, D, E, F. It's one of those, you know, but it's in 200.414. You can show them the citation okay. that says they must accept the rate. Yeah. Now, unless, unless there's some statutory language otherwise. So okay. what do you run into? Sometimes all grants are created from program statute. Mm-hmm. You know, Congress sees a need in society. They pass a public law program statute to address the law. Sometimes these program statutes have restrictions. They might say there's if there's cost sharing, that comes from the program statute. The program statute will say who's eligible mm -hmm. for the award. The program statute will say if subawards are allowed. And the program statute will say if there are any restrictions on indirect, like we don't allow indirect costs for this program, or we have, when I was in education, we, a lot of the educational statutes restricted indirect costs to 8%. So the U.S. code, the, the program statute takes precedence. So if the funding agency says we don't allow indirect costs, you have to ask a question, well, is that an arbitrary decision of your agency or is it tied to statutory language mm -hmm. from the program statute or the federal agency regulation? Yeah. It has to be statutory language that would prohibit the indirect or limit the and if in in absence of any statutory requirements, they must accept the negotiated rate. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting. I had I had a lady in class once that she worked for. I think it was the Florida. Yes, it was the Florida Department. Were they? It may have been like Department of Natural Resources, mm -hmm. Wildlife, and that kind of thing. And I know she was frustrated because she's like, we have uh, it's one grant program they had that was small, like $10,000, $15,000 grants. Mm -hmm. And she's like, we have a lot of universities apply for it. But she's like, when they're indirect cost rates, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent, yeah. mm -hmm. she's like, we're basically giving them $2,000. Right. Can't do a whole lot with $2,000, you know? So she's like, and I was like, well, I guess you could choose not to fund them. And she's like, yeah, but then that looks bad because we're not funding our universities. And, you know, so she's like, it's just a, it starts to get complicated. And I could, I could see her point of view of when you're talking about such a small amount of funding, there, there isn't a lot going to direct program costs when you allow right. it. So they can always ask them if they would consider a reduced rate. You mm -hmm. can't make them, but, but, but the funding agency can ask them mm -hmm. if they would consider when I worked for my institutions of higher ed, we had very high, we had a 53% indirect cost rate for our on-campus rate and a 28 indirect cost rate for our off-campus rate because mm -hmm. we had, you know, we, we had campus, we had um, rented office space and buildings all over the county to make it easy for people to get to night classes oh, nice. um, working all day. So it, all we had to do is pay for rent. We didn't have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So our off-campus rate was much lower. Mm -hmm. We usually used our off-campus rate. We never used the 53%. The only time we used that 53% rate is if there was a big cost-sharing requirement. And then we yeah. could waive it officially. Uh-huh it toward cost sharing it was an easy way for us to make up that that cost sharing requirement nice. so the funding agencies i know it's it's a dance it's a it's a
delicate recipient. And it's a delicate dance between the program people and the financial people within the organization. So it just goes down, it boils down to good communication. What can we do? What can't we do? What would be appropriate to give up in order to be more attractive to the funder? Yeah. Can we use what we're giving up for cost sharing or -hmm. for something else? You know, so we're not, so we're still making good use of it, even though it's going to be direct instead of indirect costs. These have been fantastic questions, very insightful questions about (laughs) it. And it speaks to, goes back to your question, Will, why wouldn't we have an indirect cost rate? Because sometimes it creates a lot of drama. Yeah. Yeah. This is true. Very true. Well, I could probably sit here and ask about a thousand more questions because uh, I love, you can tell that you were a teacher in a former life, Karen, because you explain, you're so patient and you explain things. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, notes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure there's tons of people that are going to listen to this and be like, I want to hire Karen. And I know you don't actually do negotiated rates. That's not part of what you do, but you do. Tra- I'm not a licensed financial professional, so I wouldn't feel right, but I could coach or I could provide training yes. or, you know, more in-depth training, or mm-hmm. I could give you exercises to test out, well, here's a budget. Let me try the the total direct cost. How does that turn out? Yeah. Okay, here's the same budget. Let me try modify total direct cost. How do I do that? And then you can compare the outcomes. Yes. So I can do things like that. I can help you with comparisons, but I wouldn't actually do the formal calculation because I'm not licensed to do so. Right. Well, if folks want to reach out to you and get any coaching or training, how can they find you? It's the best way. They can find me on my website at HTTPS colon slash slash Kanoko, K-A-N-O-C-O. It stands for a Karen Norris company. Kanoko. Com. I think if you use the WW, it will still work, but my site is has special virus protection, so it's HTTPS. You can um, reach me by email at knorris, K-N-O-R-R-I-S, at kanoko.com, or my cell phone is 301-613-1277. You're so kind to share all of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, thanks for joining us today. This was fantastic. I learned a lot. I know Kimberly, you said you took all kinds of notes. Taking notes, taking (laughs) notes, right? I just think it's fantastic. And um, I just feel so lucky that we get to do this podcast and bring on people like you who can walk us through these specificities and Mm -hmm. give everybody some food for thought, but also Maybe I would just like to humbly suggest that if you are in an institution and you're the only grant writer there and they're like, you're the grant writer, handle this indirect cost thing. Have them listen to this podcast. (laughs) Use this as a tool. Yeah. Explain and help educate up because I think we we do an annual uh, rip from the headlines about grant management gone wrong and Mm. people in jail and money going back and all this. But a lot of that, can happen i just think through just ignorance of mm-hmm. how these things work and oh i didn't know i didn't know i could do that or yeah. i didn't know i shouldn't have done that that's usually what happens oh the de minimis isn't on everything it's on what yeah because i <laughs> always thought de minimis yeah. everything yeah so i think it's just um even or even if you're in a position now where you're like oh i only go to private foundations trust me I started out my career in private and corporate, but it's expanded and this kind of information you can take to a future employer or client, or you mm-hmm. can just educate up and help people understand who may not understand the, the benefits and the complexities of this kind of work in grants. Right. Very true. We are so glad that you took the time and chose to, to make the time to listen to our podcast, whether you've been with us for this very first episode or all the way since 2018, um, please follow and leave a review of Fundraising Heyday 
on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you're listening, right? Otherwise, um, if you're listening to us on Spotify, um, share a link with friends. It really makes a difference. It seems like a cheesy request, perhaps it is, but it makes a difference in how the algorithms for these platforms connect us with people just like you who could have fun while they're learning and uh, benefit from that community connection. Now, if you just can't get enough of the heyday stuff, I would also invite you to visit our new shiny website, um, heydayservices.com. That's heyday, H-A-Y-D-A-Y, services.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter, the Heyday Hot Takes, where you can find out about um, keynotes and trainings that we're doing, but also find out about um, some key emerging trends and other things going on in the world of grants and fundraising. We want to give you useful things that will help you do your stuff. Thank you again to our season six sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest resources today. We're so honored you chose to spend time with us today. Please join us again in two weeks. We're going to be talking about the pros and cons for organizations, whether they are going to hire a grant consultant or hire an employee to handle all of their grant stuff. So who knows what's the right one for your organization? Join in and find out. See ya.